0: Welcome to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. I'm Mark Gregory, along with Charlie Winfield. Bulldog win two of three this past weekend against Ole Miss on Super Bulldog weekend. And then the dogs come out. They clean up UAB real nicely on Tuesday night as well. We had Sunday coffee this past week to talk about the first two state uh, games against Ole Miss. They split the first two. Charlie Winfield, we talked about Sunday, about how big Sunday was going to be. Little did we know hours later of what Sunday was going to
1: entail. And it's interesting when you go back and you try to say what went right, it's so easy to focus on that Tanner Allen hit. That was obviously probably the hit of the weekend. But so many other things had to happen for Mississippi State to win that game. Rowdy Jordan had to go four for five. He had to get good pitching out of the bullpen from Houston Harding. The bottom of the order had to piece together some hits in that sixth inning. De Brule had a hit. Braylon Skinner had a hit.
0: Josh Hadger had a defensive play at first base what was unbelievable.
1: And that was a play where you saw the proper technique from a first baseman turning his shoulder, going back, and getting that ball, then making a difficult throw. And as much criticism as has been made about Josh Hatcher playing first, if you've got anybody else there, that play probably isn't made, and it changes the game.
0: Man, looking back, just seeing the atmosphere, seeing everything around this past weekend – especially in the Sunday game because it kind of it came down to those last three innings. What do, what did do we talk to Josh Lovelady about? The separation point between good and good and great and great in the SEC is inning seven through nine. And we won inning six through nine. That was the thing we did on Sunday. And there was a fine line. That game could have gone Ole Miss' way very easily. That's the thing. It's just making plays late in the game. They went to Broadway, and I know the Ole Miss people are really going going off on Mike Bianco, and I know what he was trying to do. He was trying to get it to the seventh inning for Broadway. He was trying his best to just to piecemeal it together to the seventh, and then the bases are loaded. as a tie game, and then it goes to his guy, who quickly falls behind 2-0, and, and Tanner Allen. I mean, it was just man-on-man situation. It was their guy. It was our guy, and, and our guy just got that double to right center field.
1: And you wonder, going back and looking at how games break down, we tend to think in terms of at-bats as a whole or innings as a whole, but if you break down that at-bat, Broadway misses just off the plate on his first pitch, misses again, and now when you're behind 2-0, and it allows the hitter to take a very different approach at the plate. We talked about when Tanner Allen was coming to the plate, he's got to be thinking other way up the middle. When you get ahead 2-0, and all of a sudden you can think fastball and let's light this thing up, and... What that thing get off the bat at? Like 110 miles an hour, I think you had the number during the game.
0: Yeah, exit Velo 110. I mean, that was a shot. I mean, he squared it. What, the, what did Ted Williams say one time? The hardest thing to do in sports is hit a round ball with a round bat and hit it square. Well, he hit it square. Just just lit it up. So it, it was great. That was a good win for State. Now you're at the midway point of SEC play at 10-5. and five. And so now you go to Vanderbilt. We'll talk about that Vanderbilt series later today. So on the show today, we've got a good show for you. Up next, Chris Young, who pitched at Mississippi State from, what, 1999 to 2001. He's now the bullpen coach with the Chicago Cubs. We had Chris on last year, and we talked about his time at Mississippi State. Here's what I want to do, Charlie, is I just want to ask him some – just pepper him with some questions about pitching. I want to learn something about pitching. And I can think of nobody better than Chris Young, a guy that I know – is probably going to be watching just about every game that we do, which is so funny because he is so tuned in to what the dogs are doing.
1: It's really interesting, right? If you think college baseball doesn't matter, it's amazing. We talked to Kendall Graveman watching us you know, in the bullpen. We've seen a lot of funny things happen, but Mississippi State baseball matters, and it continues to matter to these guys even when they go to the highest levels. Pepper him with some questions, see what we get. And of course, we're brought to you by Farm
0: Bureau. Farm Bureau, go with a home team. Farm Bureau—they have agents in every county in the state of Mississippi, every area. So check them out at favrates.com. You know your Farm Bureau insurance guy throughout the town. Usually, they got three or four in each community. So go by, ask for those great rates. Because the best thing that they offer on the backside of those great rates is tremendous service. It's all about the service when it comes to Farm Bureau. And once again, we're brought to you by our friends at Farm Bureau. When we come back, we'll talk to Chris Young, the Chicago Cubs pitching coach, right after this, on Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. And welcome back to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Bart Gregory, Charlie Winfield. Time now for our guest line segment brought to you each week by our friends at Heartland Catfish. Heartland located in the Mississippi Delta in Itabena, Mississippi, serving the finest farm-raised catfish anywhere. And you can get them at your local grocer. Walmart has it. It's in the black and blue box. It's got that logo, Heartland Catfish. It's great stuff. And they serve it at great restaurants throughout the southeast. And one of the places you can get it, if you're on the way to Nashville this weekend, the Country and Western Steakhouse in Camden, Tennessee, a lot of times if you're coming from will you try to go up through Lexington, that back way to get on Interstate 40, you get at Parker's Crossroads, you take a right, you get on 40 and go to Nashville, just head right up the road, Camden, the Country and Western Steakhouse, everything on the menu is outstanding, it's just off the banks of the river, and the Country and Western Steakhouse, they serve that great heartland catfish they battered it up right it's phenomenal at the country and western steakhouse in camden tennessee and this segment once again brought to you by heartland catfish the official pitching consultant of the out of left field show the bullpen coach for the chicago cubs former bulldog chris young joins us chris uh, hey listen how cold is it in chicago right now
2: Man, it's uh, I'm uh, I'm seeing some snow flurries out the window right now, so uh, I am not uh, eagerly awaiting this six block walk to the ballpark as much as I normally do every day.
0: Man, I tell you what, it, it's cold here in Starkville today. So here's our thought process. You know, we had you on the show last year. We talked about your time at Mississippi State. So Charlie and I just said, hey, you know what, let's let's do like a little pitching 101, and we we'll just want to pepper you with some questions. And if there's something you don't want to talk about, we'll just go on to the next question. And so we don't want to offend you in any way. So we just want to just throw some detailed pitching questions for you.
2: All right. Is one of them, if uh, Landon Sims fastball is good, because I've got the answer to that one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, before we get to going there, I mean, you guys played the Pirates, what, last week? Did you get a chance to see Bednar's brother or Chris Stratton?
2: Yeah, I did actually. Got a chance. Um, never met Chris Stratton before and um really quickly his uh, uh Bednar's older brother went into the game and that kind of stirred up a question and the next thing you know, I'm fist pumping another former bulldog in the bullpen and uh having a few minute conversation with him. It was uh, it was really neat.
1: Oh, that's awesome. So I I'm curious. Bart and I as we're coming on the air all the time you're asked to give keys for pitching and we end up getting talking about matchups and things that got me thinking, one of the things that we say sometimes about guys is they need to get ahead with their fastball. And then you start to read articles, analytics, and that type of thing. And it says in major leagues, guys are throwing too many fastballs. Number one, do you think that's true in major league baseball? And if so, is it different in college?
2: Yeah, I think it work. I think it works in trends. Um, I really do. I, I think, you know, for a while it was like down and away. Here's your down and away fastball for strike one. Like, and that works in little league, and it works in the big leagues, and, and to a sense, it still does. I think as the information age has progressed in the big leagues, what we have learned is that there's a handful, sometimes if not more, guys that, in a sense, if you can throw a breaking ball for a strike, oh oh, they're just gonna take it. Like we call it swallowing. They're just gonna swallow the curveball, and now you're oh one. And, you, you know, and, and obviously we know how much that swings in your favor, then you go to work. And so um, I think the information age has helped with that, the ability to see what guys do OO, the ability to see maybe that guy that comes up and is always on that OO heater, maybe that's the guy you want to spin a little bit to get ahead. So the information age has helped. You know, I, I think we've learned with fastballs how they're all different, how two guys with four-seam fastballs at 94 miles an hour through information, those two fastballs can be remarkably different, whereas the one guy's fastball down and away might be incredible, and then you've got the other guy who wants to get ahead at the top of the zone with a fastball, and so uh, I think information has changed a lot of that. I still believe you know, the down and away fastball the majority of the time is a good start, but uh, information has definitely, definitely changed the plan of attack.
0: Talking to Chris Young, Chicago Cubs bullpen coach, former Mississippi State player, and Let's talk about the uh, changeups for a minute. You know, Houston Harding is one of our left-handers. He starts in the midweek and then sometimes comes out of the bullpen in the weekend. We saw him this weekend. But Charlie and I kind of talk back and forth during his his outings about he may be as good against right-handed hitters and he's a lefty. He may be as good against right-handed hitters and that, not that typical fashion of left on left in the big leagues. How much do you see left on left changeups or right on right changeups if ever?
2: Yeah. I think when you see them, they're really effective, really effective. Um, Just knowing in my, in my past, I mean, I've had a few guys specifically the left on left changeup is just something you don't see. And it's funny as you, as you go through information, as you try to get ready for a series, as um, in my past, you're trying to figure out how to get out Freddie Freeman or Christian Yelich or Bryce Harper. As you start digging, it's really interesting to find that you don't see a lot of left on left change ups, which in a sense, if you've got an average or better one, can make it a really effective pitch. Um, and so I, I think just in a vacuum, the same the same sided right on right, left on left change ups are incredibly impactful. One, you don't see a ton of them, and two, that gives you a little bit more room for air as well.
1: One of the things that we hear a lot, or at least used to, is the idea that if you wanted to be a starter, you better have three pitches because you're going to need that third pitch when it comes time to go through the order a third time. More and more, it seems like in college games, Bart and I are seeing guys who are basically two-pitch guys. It's usually a fastball and maybe a hard slider, sometimes a little bit slower breaking pitch in behind it, but primarily two-pitch guys. I see in major leagues you get a guy like you, Darvish, who may throw eight different pitches in the course of a game. How important is it at the big league level to have that third, fourth pitch? And is two pitches enough now?
3: Yeah,
2: you know, I think it kind of works on a sliding scale. I think if you have velocity and you have an absolute wipeout breaking ball that you can throw for strikes and throw for chase when you want, you know, I, I think you can see a two-pitch mix works all, you know, back, I think it was like 2014, 2015, when I was scouting for the Padres, we had a guy, Tyson Ross, who had what universally was agreed upon for them, but was an 80 slider. And he had a fastball that was 93, 96 with, you know, average command at the time, who was a starting pitcher and a highly, you know, very successful starting pitcher for a couple year run there. Um, who kind of defied the, you know, I like to call it the Adam Wainwright starter kit, the 6'6", six, six righty with four pitches. Like, that's kind of always what we've all dreamed on. That's what we all want. But I think it's a little bit of a sliding scale. I think if you find yourself having a handful of, you know, maybe on the scouting, the scouting scale, a handful of average pitches, you probably need to have a few of them that you can move around the zone, that you can throw to different parts of the zone in different counts to make you effective as a starter.
0: Chris, sometimes when you have rule changes, they really don't matter a whole lot. When you start talking about the number of mound visits, I mean, you can kind of adjust and play through those. But sometimes you have rule changes that really change the game. How has having to pitch to three batters changed the game for bullpens in Major League Baseball?
2: Yeah, it's definitely definitely impacted it. It's made you look at the guys that historically were your dominant same side guys your lefty that comes in to get the one lefty your righty that comes in to get the one righty it's made you take a deep look at those guys and find out a couple different things one of them like hey which which pocket of the lineup can we get this guy two out of three if it's a lefty two out of three lefties and then that righty in the middle is there a way that we can game plan to help him have the best chance of success versus him um it's changed the way you kind of evaluated those guys obviously there's a platoon split there but how close to platoon neutral are they and do they have a pitch mix that maybe you can adjust maybe you can game plan for that can give them and you know that can get them a little bit closer to platoon neutral versus those guys that historically maybe they've had they've had issues with and it also impacts how managers are writing their lineup and so it's definitely impacted a little bit it's definitely um i think it's i don't know if it's sped the game up as far as the you know time on the field but it's definitely uh it's definitely impacted the game to a great degree
1: one of the other rule changes that has recently come into major league baseball and i vote against keeping it but it started to creep its way into college baseball as well as this idea that in extra innings we're going to put a runner down at second base so if you've got a pitcher taking the mound he basically starts the inning with a little trouble what is the thought process for a pitcher as you go out to the mound and X rings that guy on second? What are you trying to do? Are you Trying to keep him from scoring? Hold it to one? How are you attacking that?
2: Yeah, that's a loaded question. Um, there's a lot going on in that situation. Um, I think it, it, it starts: Are you at home? Or are you on the road? What happened? At, you know, it, did you score the inning before? You know, where are you at in your lineup the next half inning? Are you looking at two, three, four, five? and your leadoff hitters go into second, and you feel good about, hey, maybe not one, but maybe we can bunch a couple, are you down in the lineup? Are, you know, like, so you start to kind of factor the game state into it, and then you start to factor in, where's this other team at in their lineup? What are they looking to do? Are they at the bottom of the lineup where they might bunt? Are they Is it a guy coming to the plate who is going to sell out to hit the ball the other way? And then how do we attack that? Are we going to try and pitch against that? Are we You know, if, if like, like a, a simple state of like you've got a righty up who generally kills the ball in but you want to pitch him in to make him make it tough for him to move the run to the right side are you sure that guy's going to the right side or are you going right into this guy's strength and giving up a two-run home it uh, impacts a little bit how you set up your bullpen do you want to bring in your swing and miss guy in the 10th it's really impacted a lot the strategy quite honestly like we're still learning the strategy as, as it's going on. Maybe the best way to handle it from a pitching standpoint. I probably didn't do it justice, but there's definitely a lot of ways that that role has impacted the, the way we handle things.
0: Hey, Chris, we're just trying to pepper your questions, man. I love this. I could do this all day. So a couple more before we let you go. We know you, gotta, you actually have a ball game tonight. Who are the Cubs play
2: tonight? We have the uh, New York Metropolitans in town.
0: Oh, nice. Okay. Okay, so we talked a minute ago about Landon Sims, and you, you brought him up. But Landon Sims has been just lights out out of the bullpen. And this weekend, an opportunity presented itself that we have not seen this year. You know, early in the year, he threw a four-inning save against Texas, and we've used him one time per weekend. Now, I, I know a lot of that has to do with the opportunities have not presented themselves for him to pitch twice on a weekend. They did this weekend. He threw 22 pitches in Friday. He came back, and he got the save in the Sunday game against Ole Miss. When you start talking about working out of the bullpen and bounce back, how do you determine how a guy can pitch? Is it you know two days later he gives you the thumbs up? How do you get the green light to be able to pitch? And especially with the three batter minimum now and how that may have changed, a guy that throws nine pitches on Tuesday – who used to throw nine pitches on Tuesdays, now throwing 25 to 30 maybe, and now all of a sudden he's got to bounce back and come back. How do you work that as far as your workouts and your preparation and your recovery of getting a guy ready to pitch the next time?
2: Yeah, so uh, a couple things there. One, anytime, anytime the Bulldogs beat that school in Austin, that's 30 minutes away from where I live, is a, is a big deal. So uh, that, that was a good start to the season for some bragging rights around home. Second of all, I, I think – the old man in me says, "Hey, grab that ball and go." I pitch two or three times a weekend. Let's go, boy. Yeah, giddy up and roll. But the smart man in me says that it's a process, and that it involves a lot of people. It involves the player. It involves your training staff. It involves your strength and conditioning staff. It involves the coaching staff, and, and all working on the same page to try and do what's best for the player. You know, I think we've all heard. You know, player X doesn't pitch. He can't pitch back to back. We, you know, if you pitch, if you pitch two innings, you're down the next day. I, I think. Trying to get past making everybody the same is really important to me. I think knowing knowing your individual is really important to me. I, I think specifically to my job, I try, I try my best to know my guys as in and out as I can to, to develop a ton of trust with them because the one thing you can bet is if you've got a guy that's going good, he's going to tell the manager or the coach he's ready to go. And so trying to dig a little bit deeper into that to where maybe he'll tell the pitching coach or he'll tell the bullpen coach, like, Hey, like I can go, but I'm barking a little bit. Like those conversations are incredibly impactful. I had the conversations with the trainers. Hey, is this guy come in and done any extra, has he done any extra treatment Is he, how's his arm care stuff been? I, I think, you know, the strength and conditioning staff, Hey, how were his workouts this week? Like all of those things help create, I think mean, you dump them all in a funnel to try and get to the decision. That's best for the player. And, you know and, and you're trying to keep guys healthy for the short term you're trying to keep them healthy for the long term so it there's a, there's a lot I think that goes into it when you're when you're trying to make the best decision
1: possible last night Bart and I got to watch Eric Sarantola come in for Mississippi State in the ninth and earlier in the year he had struggled with his control hadn't always thrown strikes the way he needed to and we saw an adjustment last night he came in and instead of going to the windup went strictly from the stretch now I know that's been something that we've seen a lot in terms of relief pitchers over the year, and you're starting to see a little more with starting pitchers. When a guy struggles with control, how much do you like to see a guy just simplify things and abandon the windup?
2: Yeah, I think anything we can do to get that kid's stuff over the over the plate is going to be huge because that's about as good as stuff. as I, I got to watch the end of it last night. Man, holy cow. Yeah, that, that, that breaking ball plays in any game and any night on the planet.
0: All I could do was laugh. All I could do was laugh. I mean, it's, yeah. it was not fair
2: you take that breaking ball and just have it show up at Wrigley Field tonight at eight and he's throwing it for a strike, he's going to be in a good place. So um, I know that doesn't answer your question, but it sure is fun to watch when he's throwing strikes to kind of get to the question. Yeah, I, I think you've, you've seen a lot of guys do it. We mentioned you, Darvish, earlier. He's strictly out of the stretch. And I think there's some, there's some simplicity to it. There's some, when you're doing your work on the side, you're only really working on one delivery instead of two. I think there's, that matters a little bit. Um, and quite honestly, sometimes just the mental change of, hey, we're gonna make this simpler, simpler to repeat your delivery, simpler to throw strikes mentally, that can have an impact. I've obviously don't don't know the kid, but obviously just watching him, you can see the long levers, the long legs, the long arms, the way the ball jumps out of his hand, you know, having worked with guys like that, sometimes that takes a lot to sync up. And so simplifying movements down, to get the key movements you need, but keeping it simple. Um, a, a change like that is something that can definitely that can definitely work physically and at times mentally as well, too.
0: Chris, we appreciate you joining us. Chris Young, the bullpen coach for the Chicago Cubs, before we let you go. And I don't want you to incriminate yourself here, but have you, yes or no, have you taken a iPad or any kind of electronic device into a bullpen and watched Mississippi State while you're in the bullpen at a major league facility?
2: I have not done that. Now, I tell you that I have walked in, I have came home from games with it on my phone as I've walked. Um, I can tell you I was a very, very, very interesting bystander this weekend. That's a series that's pretty near and dear to my heart. And so, thank goodness I missed Saturday. Um, you missed a good one. <laughs> but but, uh, but uh, Friday night and, uh, and Sunday afternoon sure were a lot of fun to watch.
1: Well, if we say anything wrong, you can uh, let Bart know. Uh, you can tweet at Bart Gregory.
2: <laughs> I love it. Well, hey, I, uh, it's uh, it sure is it's, uh it sure is neat to uh, to see that place jumping and alive with people. That's uh, it's uh, it's a pretty special thing to see.
0: Oh, well, it really was. Hey, we'll let you get back to your real job, man, and get ready for the uh, for the Metropolitans tonight.
2: Oh, I appreciate it, guys. Man, thanks for
0: the call. Cubs pitching coach Chris Young. Well, Charlie, that was good stuff. I just wanted to do that, just kind of get a pitching 101 just to throw him some fastballs and see what he could do with them.
1: I'm not sure you went 101. I think you started at about level 201, but uh, it was kind of more of a sophomore class.
0: Yeah, it was. It's uh, this That's definitely, you need to know some baseball terms in, in baseball 101 before you get to 201 because, hey, Chris is a bulldog. I mean, he is a bulldog. He will send a text after a game. You know, he'll watch the game, so he'll send us a text and... Man, i tell you what, he follows Mississippi State, and he wears that badge of honor of being a Bulldog. And so our guest line segment this week brought to you by Heartland Catfish. But, man, i tell you what, Chris Young, what he said about Sarantola is right. That translates. What he did on Tuesday night, that translates to
1: to Wrigley Field. How cool is it, though? We're sitting there broadcasting that game. We're in the top of the ninth. I'm thinking we're down to friends and family at this point. But we were getting messages from people watching all over the country. I would not have guessed that one of the Cubs coaches would be walking home from Wrigley Field watching the game on his telephone. That's that's pretty cool.
0: And he sent me a text yesterday afternoon and said, hey, I just want to let you know that Craig Kimbrell is a Landon Sims fan. And I thought that was pretty cool too. Oh, anyway. that is. <laughs> So when Charlie and I come back, we'll talk to Ed Easley, who played at Mississippi State in the 2005 to 2007, now has the Easley Baseball Group up in the Memphis area. So right after this, you're listening to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Now, welcome back to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Bark Gregory, Charlie Winfield. Time now for another guest line segment, this time brought to you by our friends at Country Pleasing Sausage, Country Pleasing, producing the finest product. That's one of the great things about advertising for Heartland Catfish and now Country Pleasing is we're talking about good products, great products. And it's almost like it's taken a hold of like a cultish following in this area with Country Pleasing Sausage, and it's great to see because the product is just that good. And so if you've got any other brand on the grill, take it off, throw it in the dumpster, give it to the dog, and get some Country Pleasing Sausage. And it's made right here in the state of Mississippi, something that you can be proud of down on Highway 49 in Florence, Mississippi. And the great friends Henry Cooper and the gang, they do it right at Country Pleasing. And let's go to the phones where former Bulldog Ed Easley joins us, played at Mississippi State 2005 to 2007, was the winner of the Johnny Bench Award for the best catcher in college baseball. And, hey, Ed, uh, man, I look forward to talking to you. I haven't talked to you in a while. Man, I appreciate you joining us.
3: Man, yeah, glad to be here.
0: I remember this vividly. And looking back, uh, I guess 2004, somewhere in there, I was speaking at Rotary in Louisville, Mississippi. And one of the questions from the crowd was, hey, this kid at Olive Branch, any chance at all he sees campus and comes to campus? Looking back, when you were a senior in high school, you had a chance to be a really, really, really high draft pick. What was that process looking like for an 18-year-old kid of trying to figure out whether you wanted to to sign and and be a, a pro prospect at 18 or to come to college?
3: Man, it's funny you ask. I was at a high school game last night, and one of the pro scouts, Introduced himself to me. He was watching one of my current players. That's a senior at Lewisburg, committed to Arkansas Brady Tiger. And he was once I said my name. He was like, "Man, were you that kid from Olive Branch back in 2004?" And I was like, "Yes, sir." He's like, "He was with the Braves." And so we started talking a little bit about it. And you know, as I've gone through the years since I left Mississippi State, so many people have asked about, you know, how'd you end up at State? Weren't you drafted super high to high school? Why'd you turn it down? Well, the truth is I wasn't drafted out of high school. Up until about the last day right before the draft, I was being told I was going to be drafted early. Uh, Went to Yankee Stadium, went to Brewer Stadium, did some private workouts, met with the general managers, the owners. They mentioned they were going to draft me with some of their first picks. And I sat down with my parents right before the draft and made a decision that no matter when I was drafted, I wanted to go to school. And so I told my advisor at that time that I would like him to tell all 30 teams not to pick me so I could have a good, honest relationship with them heading into school, and the rest is history.
1: Uh, I didn't get
3: drafted, came to Mississippi State, had some of the best times of my life, and still was fortunate to go high.
1: Ed, you talk about coming to Mississippi State. Bart and I were on the broadcast this weekend, and – on that Sunday game, and even on that Friday game, we see Landon Sims coming out of the bullpen and closing it down to beat Ole Miss, which instantly gets Bart to look at me when it was over, think back to a game 2005 in Hoover with Brett Cleveland coming in. I'm curious kind of your big memories of that 2005 season when you came in as a freshman and played so much. For Bart and me, that's the game that kind of jumps out. What jumps out to you? Now, here's the thing. Now, I didn't
0: say – I didn't say out loud what Brett Cleveland said as soon as the game was over. I want to yeah, clarify that point. Show. This is a family show.
3: Yeah, I think um, anybody can replay that and pretty much pretty much see what he said. But, you know, I don't have a great memory. People joke with me about not being able to tell them stories of specific stuff when I was at Mississippi State. Uh, but I do remember that particular game. I remember Brett pitching. We were facing Cozart, who's a good buddy of mine that played at Ole Miss, had a long career in pro ball. What I remember not only about that game, but specifically about that game, I mess with Cleveland and, and Brian LaNempa all the time. I'm a freshman. you got a fifth-year senior on the mound. We're hopeful that we're about to close out and win. Dang, Brett, Cleveland and Brian Laninfa already have it set up. When we, when we close out the inning, they're going to dogpile together. So LaNempa comes running off the bench, and Cleveland leaves me hanging like – while they're celebrating together. <laughs> and so you, if you watch the video, you see me running around out of the middle of nowhere because the dog starts between the pitcher's mound and the first baseline because when NFL and Cleveland come together and chest bump. And so, man, that's, that's stuff. That, it's funny y'all brought those instances up because that's stuff that I do remember and we joke about. But, yeah, that was my freshman season. I did not start game one of the year. And then game two, Polk put me in there and started the rest of the rest of my career and so that's kind of something I remember and very thankful for the opportunity
0: when you talk about that dog pile you're on the bottom of one in 2007 that run you know we think about Mitch Moreland we think about you know Justin Pygat we talk about all those guys in, in that super regional against Clemson in 2007 you know looking back is that was your last game to ever play here I mean looking back it, it's hard to believe it's been 14 years now but what are the memories you have of, of that 2017 and that really improbable run to the College World Series?
3: What I remember the most is just the stretch, just the, that we kind of had a roller coaster year. But we got hot at the right time, heading down to Tallahassee, ran through that regional, came back home. People were kind of wondering how we got the bid and had to play at home. But then after the games had started, I think the, the country realized why we got the host. But yeah, I remember that weekend. One of the top three, if not number one, memory of my baseball career is having Mitch come in and close that game, and the celebration and the atmosphere. You know, just just one of many special memories that's been there at Diddy Noble. You know, two thousand seven. I don't even think was the best team we had when I was there, but like I said, we just got hot at the right time. We got we started winning some games late and uh, made a made a nice little run at it. But I was there, like I told Bart this past Friday night sitting right there somewhat behind home plate and man it brought back some memories even though that place has changed it was special
1: One of the things about your career here at Mississippi State you played behind the plate you also played some third base and we'll talk in a minute about what you're doing now helping develop players but I'm curious as you look back on your career and you give advice to guys who are coming up now who say I want to be a big time catcher how big is it to get out from behind the plate and play some first, play some third, or move around the field?
3: Yeah, it's special. It also makes you a little more valuable. Yeah, my freshman year, I kind of bounced back and forth. Me and Thomas Berkery split pretty much every game, third base and catcher. My sophomore year, I started catching the first half of the season. Then we had an injury, and I bounced over to third base for the second half. And Then my junior year, I went in Polk's office and told him I wanted to catch every game, and he said, let's do it. But I think it's valuable for a player that what you just said comes up a lot with within my discussions with some of my players' parents here in high school and even younger. You know, some of these parents get discouraged because their kids playing outfield and bouncing to second to left and catcher and and pitcher and all these different things. And I, I tell them it's it's a bonus. I mean, these these college coaches are looking for athletes. And I, I really do just think it's a bonus if you can do multiple things and, and handle the bat.
0: Talking with Ed Easley, former Bulldog player, catcher, third baseman, Johnny Bench Award winner in 2007, and now the organizer, the CEO of the Easley Baseball Group up in uh, Olive Branch, DeSoto County. And, Ed, we all kind of knew you'd, you'd be involved in baseball even when you stopped playing. But but looking now at what you're doing in development of players and having different teams. And, you know, we, we talked to so many guys that do what you do. There's a fine line you would think between wanting to be competitive. And I know you want to put together really good teams, but also the other side of trying to make that 11 year old enjoy the game enough that he wants to play it at 14. How tough is that in today's environment?
3: It is. It's, it's, uh, it's challenging. But I was again talking to somebody else about this same topic last night I wanted early in my decision to start this baseball club. I wanted to be super elite, and that's what I wanted I wanted to be special to play for e b c then I wanted people to to have to work hard to even make our club and that's still true like we don't just keep anybody but as i've I've moved forward, I realized that it's kind of like a pyramid. If you look at it, we try to keep multiple teams at, at six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old and let them just experience it and have fun and enjoy the process because those 10 year olds, by the time they're 14 or 17, could be a top tier player, even though they're on a bottom tier at 10. And that's an example I use all the time. I've got five 14 year old teams and a player on my, my fourth or fifth 14-year-old team is getting the same treatment and, and paid coaching and, and development. So that's just my business model because when they're 17, they may end up being a Mississippi State commit. And so it doesn't matter where you are at a certain age. It's just a matter of how you finish. And that's what I think we're able to do is provide that opportunity to all, all skilled players.
1: I'm curious in the job you have now. How much interaction do you have with coaches and scouts who pick up the phone and call you and say, tell me about this kid. Tell me if you think he's a fit. Tell me where you think he is in his development.
3: Daily. It's what I enjoy the most. I have teams from 6-year-olds to 18-year-olds, and I do take pride in my 6- to 13-year-old teams because they're my future. But what I wake up and enjoy the most is is these 14- to 18-year-old players that that I can somewhat say I recently went through their their process and the shoes they're in. Um, but to answer your question, I mean I'm on the phone or shooting texts back and forth daily with college coaches of all levels, junior college all the way up to to communicating with with GoTRO and Foxhall and those guys on a weekly basis about some of our players, and it just brings joy out because of um, one, it's it's a blessing that they're coming to me and asking about these players, and two, that they can trust my opinion uh, when I tell them something about somebody.
1: You know, I'm curious, we see more and more in college baseball this idea where guys who are in, you know, ninth grade are already committing to colleges. How much do you run across, whether on your team or teams that you're playing against, where you see guys who are just late bloomers, and how hard is it to find those guys a spot in today's recruiting world?
3: So it's it's a it's a small percent of players that are that are quick bloomers at that eighth and ninth grade level that you're talking about, and so I've got sixty players that are playing for me that are in eighth grade, and maybe two of them have already communicated with a Division One college coach. So that tells you right there that the majority of kids these days are not being recruited until their sophomore, or junior year, or even senior year, and so. It's not necessarily tough to find those late bloomers a chance to play, um, but it just it, it's just a later process for them. It's a, I'd say ninety percent of players that play in my system go on to the next level, and most of the time that other ten percent just decided to go get a real job and move on with their life. And so most of the time you can find a player that wants to play and is going to work hard and has somewhat of ability a place to play somewhere.
0: Ed and talking about we're talking to Ed Easley, former Bulldog catcher. And along those lines, and you start talking about you know talking with coaches and whatnot. If if you now are you're an adult, <laughs> you're in the adult shoes, and and you took kind of an adult approach back in 2004. I mean, how is that process now of looking somebody in the eye who's 17, 18, and all of a sudden you know what they're thinking? All of a sudden, a major league club is talking to them. Do you kind of follow that same process that you had you 2004, 17 years ago? I mean, how do you talk to those people about trying to make the decision about whether to go to school, what school to go to, or signing a major league contract?
3: Well, two things with that question is, one, every, every player is different. Every player has a different path, different reasons why they should maybe continue on to college instead of not consider the professional ball route as much early. So, it's more of an individual based situation. I'm only going into my fourth year in my organization. So, I'm just now starting to get to the point where I'm dealing with, with high school seniors that are that are about to have the opportunity or about to have a decision to make. Are they going to go to school? Are they going to do pro route? And so, I don't, nec- I, I give them my story. I give them what I went through to ultimately just help them make their own decisions. Uh, I don't push one way or the other it's more of just what's best for the family what's best for the kid I often think I often look back and think man what what would have happened if I would have said man let's go play pro ball at a high school how much money could I have put in my bank account and where where would my path taken me how much quicker could I get into the big leagues all these different scenarios but the second part of the question is, is a lot of people know that I'm a bulldog and maybe maybe think I try to push players to Mississippi State more often than not, and I try to make sure that's not the case. Even though I'm a Bulldog, I'm biased, I want Mississippi State to be successful. With my current job, I try to send kids where they're wanted the most and where they want to go. And so, and look, Lamonis knows that, and Bianca knows that, and, and different coaches that I communicate with and, and have players commit to. Um, I talked to Carl Lafferty, just as much as anybody else. And, and he knows. He jokes with me about it. And so where I stand right now, uh, wherever I make these kids give me a short list of where they want to go. And then if it's realistic and these college coaches like this player, then I'm going to try to get these kids to where they want to go.
0: Yeah, before we let you go, and you, you mentioned Brian Lenin for a minute ago. We talk about Mitch Moreland, and you think about all those guys you played with, and it, it's amazing. I, I think about that group, you know, oh five, six, seven in the into 8, about how close you guys were and about how much you, know, you guys are back on campus. How how big's the Tex group? how many people do you, do you get a chance to, to really converse with those old guys I see jeff butts at the ballpark sometimes uh how how much do you do you get a chance to, to talk to those old guys
3: not near as much as I'd like to to be honest uh it's more of just following their family on the social media these days closest guys I'll keep in touch with from college days is jeff Black, living down in Jupiter Florida who's a personal trainer in golf, believe it or not, at a big Bears club down there. <laughs> big swing um, golf
0: guy, man. man.
3: He crushes it. <laughs> uh, Jeffrey Ray and I will we'll talk often. Chad Crosswhite, Mitch Moreland. Brandon Turner and I actually are doing the same thing now. Brandon's got a successful organization in Chattanooga area, Exposure Baseball, so me and him talk often.
1: Man, Russ he could hit a baseball.
3: Yeah, Turner was a good one. Russ Needs kind of helped me from the business side of things with my organization, successful here in the Memphis area. So, but not near as much, man. I wish we could get together more often, and I hopefully, hopefully we can with some alumni events coming up here in the next couple of years. Ed, it's always
0: great to talk with you, man. Tell your dad, I said hello.
3: <laughs> yes, sir. Thank you all very much for having me.
0: Ed Easley, former Bulldog catcher, 2005 to 2007. You know, that's an interesting dynamic. That's an interesting world. And, of course, Charlie, you know, I'm involved in it right now as far as, you know, travel baseball. You were in it at one time. There's, there's a lot of back-channeling going on. But I tell you what, when you got guys like, like Ed Easley, and he mentioned the Brandon Turners, and, of course, you know, our good friends Eric DeBose and so many great organizations in the southeast – that's the one thing in common with those Mississippi State guys, not not taking away anything from anybody else. But those three guys right there, they do it right. They are honest with kids. And i tell you what, I'm proud of Ed and what he's done up there.
1: Yeah, I am too. And, you know, it's very interesting. You and I both have experience in that world, as you were saying. I think if I could give one set of advice to younger Charlie Winfield, you know, the guy who was coaching the 8-year-old and 9-year-old teams, it would be, quit worrying about winning and losing and getting a stupid $15 piece of plastic ring on a weekend.
0: That's a $3 ring.
1: You you, you want to win, you obviously. Do. But at the same time, it's really interesting. I had a good friend uh, whose kid had not been, you know, kind of been in and out of the lineup. He'd been hitting last. And, you know, this past weekend, he has three doubles and a home run and not one of these through-the-legs home runs. I mean, what? Yeah. kid's 11. And, and I think the number one thing about guys, this is one of the things I like about Ed, all these guys doing it is they understand this. When you are dealing with kids, you're dealing with high school kids, you have to be willing to reevaluate what you think about somebody every single day. Kids 11 and 12, you know, half of them look like they could drive to work. You know, half of them look like they, you know, still ought to be, you know, on the lower end of the elementary playground. There's such a difference in that gap. And if there's one thing, it's, man, just wait, just see where they go. Because I think people make decisions way too soon. And then when they get older, it needs to get a little more serious. You need to start separating what you have. And the thing I like about Ed, Brandon, Eric, all those guys, is the ability to have those. And we talked to Marcus Timms about that. you got to be able to have those direct conversations with people, let them know where they are. And, boy, you think it's tough dealing with a major leaguer (laughs) I think a 16-year-old's mom may be even worse some days to just say, look, you've put in a lot of time, you've put in a lot of money, you've put in a lot of effort. I'm sorry, but you're not going D1. That's a pretty tough thing.
0: I could do a complete show on this
1: and standing around and listening to dads. It's absolutely,
0: hey, just take a deep breath. Just take a deep breath. What did Ed just say a minute ago? If you're trying to find your kid a spot, if you're playing for that 15% scholarship – You always find a place to go. And so, hey, just relax. Let the kid have fun. Anyway, that's another story for another day. But good stuff from Ed Easley as well. Charlie and I will come back. We'll have a final word right here on Out of Left Field. You're listening to Out of Left Field presented by Farm Bureau. And welcome back. Final segment of Out of Left Field presented by Farm Bureau. Bart Gregory, Charlie Winfield. Well, Charlie... Man, I tell you what, this this hour flew by pretty quickly. Two really good guys, two guys that that I enjoyed, you know, kind of being around when they were here playing ball. And really good pitcher in Chris Young. He was the 2001 SEC Tournament MVP. And then Ed Easily just got better as his, as his years went on. Went to the minor leagues. He got up to the big leagues at one time, and just a great ambassador for baseball. And so, yeah, that was a that was a lot of fun right there.
1: Yeah, it absolutely was. I enjoyed being able to visit with those guys. I could talk with Chris Young about pitching for hours, and I want to take a notepad because you can learn a lot from a guy like that.
0: And going back to your point, Charlie, about you know we're sitting there in the booth, ninth inning on Tuesday night in a 19-6 to game, and you're like, well, there's not a whole lot of people watching this. And a guy with the Chicago Cubs is sitting there watching Eric Sarantala pitch, and he brought up a good point. You know, if If he can harness it, He's a guy that can really compete at any level of baseball. Ed Easley, we talked about him just a moment ago. Man, i tell you what, he's got his head on shoulders and just a tremendous person. Okay, let's look at Vanderbilt this weekend.
1: I would let my kid play for Ed Easley in a heartbeat, by the way.
0: Oh, yes, absolutely. He's got a little dog in him. Vanderbilt, so many people have asked about tickets at Vanderbilt this weekend and not exactly sure what they're going to do. They haven't fully made a determination yet about how many people they're going to let in the stadium. What they have been doing to this point, if I am I may be wrong on this, is just player parents. I think that's what they've been doing, just pass list only at Vanderbilt. And so if you're going up there, and we had this situation in the Super Regional a couple of years ago where it's very tough to get tickets to Vanderbilt. You have that parking garage out behind right Field that I know a lot of people go and watch, but just know that you're probably going to have to socially distance very well. Vanderbilt's a different place, man. I'm telling you. it's a, And Tim Corbin kind of lit it up a little bit this past weekend over in Knoxville when they had big crowds at Tennessee, and he says, hey, our administration needs to see this. We need to open it up a little bit more. But, hey, on the field, this is a big series between two top five teams.
1: And the thing that has happened is, although Vanderbilt is very good, they no longer, to me at least, appear invincible. They dropped one out of two against Tennessee. I think that Georgia weekend a couple of weeks back is the one that really kind of gave you this idea, wait a minute, they're they're human too. They're not necessarily the best team in the country. And, you know, look, Georgia put 14 runs on the board on the game one and put nine in game three. You've still got two really good pitchers that you've got to navigate around in rocker and lighter, but even though it's rare, they are beatable.
0: They are, and you know we saw a big-time right-hander in the game on Friday this past week, Gunnar Hoagland for Ole Miss, and we struggled at times, but we were able to barrel up enough balls. And that's when you look at this weekend – Nikhazy was a dominant left-hander, and he kind of felt like, you know, this is a team, we saw that early in the year against TCU, you see that dominant left-hander gives us trouble because we have so many left-handed bats in the lineup. Leiter's outstanding. He's going to be really good Saturday. I look for Will Bednar to bounce back in the Saturday game, but you don't have, those are two right-handed hard throwers, and we have been able to hit. If, if you can get in hitter-friendly counts, like we talked about with T.A. a little a little bit ago with that two-o count. If you can somehow get to a two-o two-one one count and get into hitter's counts and sit on fastball a little bit, we can hit lighter. We can hit rocker a little bit.
1: And I like the fact, too, I would rather take my chances with the guys like that that are basically going to be guys throwing reasonably hard, attacking you, than going back to looking at the pitchers who we've struggled with. I think soft throwers, change-up guys, give us trouble. Look, these guys are going to be very difficult to hit. I think the big question is going to be how can you make an adjustment the second time through the order? But all things being equal, I'd rather have a guy that's just going to run it up there and challenge me like a lighter than somebody who's just going to throw effectively wiffle balls up there all day.
0: It's all reaction. It's all just getting after it. It takes away the thinking process. And what does thinking do?
1: It only hurts the ball club.
0: Absolutely. Charlie enjoyed it as always. Two good guys with Ed Easley and Chris Young joining us. State with a big weekend this past weekend. Have a big one set up for the coming weekend. Should be a great series with Mississippi State and Vanderbilt. Of course, we'll be back on Sunday morning for our Sunday coffee. We'll take a look back at the first two games of the weekend. Hey, subscribe to the podcast if you're hearing it just for the first time. I've actually had a number of people reach out to me in the last week, especially at Super Bowl all weekend, and say, hey, somebody's telling me about a podcast that you guys are doing. If you're listening to it for the first time, hit subscribe. Give us a rating. Tell us if you like us. We like to be talked about in a good way. Hey, before we go, I think I told you this on Sunday. Our job every time we broadcast is to be down the middle. It's a disservice to people around the country to watch a game. To me, this is my my thoughts. It's a disservice for people around the country to watch a Mississippi State-Ole Miss game to see two state guys being homers on the TV. And I think that's one of the things we kind of wear as a badge is we want to make sure we do it the right way. But I tell you what, Charlie, in the bottom of the sixth the other day when Tanner Allen hit that triple. <laughs> it gets a little harder, doesn't it? It took me an inning to calm down. I'm telling you, it took me an inning to stop shaking. That was that was so cool. It was just a cool weekend, cool moment. And so appreciate everybody out there who came to Super Bowl all weekend to make it what it was. And so we'll be back on Sunday. Great stuff this week on Out of Left Field. You're listening to Out of Left Field presented
3: by Farm Bureau.